to episode one of the Never Give Up podcast, brought to you by Reset My Future, a team with over 30 years of experience in the substance abuse field. I'm your host, Danielle, and today I will be talking to Graham Alford, founder of Reset My Future, about his journey from criminal lawyer to underworld criminal, what his rock bottom looked like, and the life-changing event that found him at the bottom of the mountain, working his way back up to the man he is today, recognised recovery supporter for thousands of individuals, published author and proud family man. He'll tell us how his journey led him to start multiple successful businesses, shake hands with Nelson Mandela, and find true enjoyment in a sober life. Graham, welcome to your podcast. I think it's fair to say you've had a pretty varied and interesting journey today. So for all our new listeners, uh, take us back to the 70s. Tell me what your life looked like back then. Hi, Danny. Yes, look, it's great to be doing the podcast. You and I have been speaking about this for some time, and finally it's come to fruition. The 70s were a crazy time for me. I was private school educated. Uh, I graduated from law in 1972 at Melbourne University, and for the next uh, four or five years, I was a barrister. Uh, I practiced criminal law. Then I opened up my own criminal law practice uh, in 1976 in North Melbourne. Uh, I was acting for the underworld. I acted for all the painters, a lot of the painters and dockers and the armed robbery gangs. And uh, I was a member of two or three exclusive clubs. So any night of the week, you would see me drinking at these clubs. Um, I was brought up in hotels, mum owned pubs. So uh, drinking was naturally in my culture. Uh, I got married in 1972. Um, and uh, we had a couple of children by 1977, 78. Um, they were exciting times uh, acting in the underworld, acting for all the underworld. And uh, I enjoyed the cut and thrust of the court work and going up against the police and seeing if I could get my clients off. Um, so yeah, they were very different times to now. So high flying, that sounds quite exciting. And uh, you very briefly mentioned drinking. And um, you mentioned that casually, Graham, but I know you well. <laughs> I don't think it was casual, was it? So why don't you tell us a bit more about um, what drinking looked like for you back then? And uh, were you aware that it was about to become a bit of a problem? Yeah, drinking, uh, now that I look back and I know what I know, um, I uh, was drinking alcoholically from the get-go. I, I loved the taste, but I also mm -hmm. loved the effect. Um, and I was involved in a really serious car accident back in 1968. Uh, the passenger Nelly died. She was to go on and become my wife. And uh, oh, wow. I, <laughs> that worked out okay. Yeah, first time I ever took her out. Um, and <laughs> she um, and I, I'd blacked out. Uh, I'd been drinking all day. It was Easter Saturday. I'd been drinking for two days beforehand. So in the 70s, um, I. I was drinking probably by 1975 or six, probably 20, 25 beers a day. Um, but I used to kid myself. So I, I, I never drank during a court case or before a court case. So uh, I thought I had it under control. But if the court case finished, if I was in the magistrate's court and it finished at lunchtime, uh, I'd be still drinking the following morning at three o'clock in nightclubs. And uh, I'd go home and have a couple of hours sleep and a, a shower. Uh, wake up next morning and go out to the car and there'd be half a souvlaki hanging off the steering wheel and I would have no recollection of stopping somewhere on the way home and getting it and 
sometimes I'd go out and the car wasn't there and I'd have no idea where I'd left it. So oh, I, I, yeah, I, I was drinking uh, way too much. Um, but as I said, I was brought up in hotels. In those days, I was brought up, real men drank. Uh, if you didn't drink, there was something wrong with you. And um, I used to think to myself, I wish drinking had have been an Olympic game sport. I, uh, I would never have made the team, but it wouldn't have been for the lack of training. <laughs> that sounds familiar also. And, and are you starting to see problems uh, with this at home and work by this time? Uh, looking back, I can, but at the time I didn't. Uh, one, of the, uh, one, one of the things that alcohol did to me was I, I went into this other world and I thought I was okay. I, I thought I was all right. Uh, and the people around me were starting to sound the warning bells. And I can remember being at a family function back in 1975 and one of the uh, sales reps who work with my mother said to me, Graham, you should go to AA. Well, I was mortified. Me, I, I couldn't hmm. believe, you know, it was an insult that I, he even thought that I needed to go to AA. So it was starting to become obvious to those around me that my drinking was an issue, but I certainly didn't see it. Yeah, and I think that, you know, that's quite common, isn't it, the, the stage of denial. Um, but, for you know, sadly for people like us with this addiction, we know that things just don't get better uh, while we're drinking like this. So do you mind sharing with us, where did it take you? Uh, did you? Did you experience some kind of life-changing event which woke you up to realising you had to make some kind of change? Yeah, the, the, the life-changing event, <clears throat> excuse me, the life-changing event was... 1982, um, I'd, but, well, there'd been two or three events that should have been life-changing events and, in fact, were life-changing events, but they didn't cause me to look at alcohol as the issue. Um, I uh, got disbarred in 1978 because I'd gambled away and drunk away my trust account, and I got a couple of years jail, um, and I lost a lot of weight, but I didn't, I didn't think I had a drinking problem. And I can remember getting out and going to the parole board and I left the parole board and went to a hotel in Richmond, which is a suburb here in Melbourne. And uh, I said to the publican who I knew, pour me a pot and make sure the frost's coming over the top. I've dreamt about this. And I drank about, I don't know, seven or eight pots. or uh, And I thought to myself, this layoff, this 16 months in jail has done me good. I'm feeling terrific. So... You would have thought that that would have been a wake-up call, and by that stage I'd separated from my wife. Uh, you would have thought that would have been a wake-up call. Then I got arrested in 1980 at Christmas time uh, for passing checks that weren't mine, and I got a couple of months jail for that. For that, and you would have thought that would have been a wake-up call, but it wasn't. And in 1982, on October the 15th. I was arrested uh, in the commission of a bank robbery with three other people, and uh, that was the wake-up call. Uh, the next day when I was in jail, uh, I, I remember sitting in the yards at Pentridge, which was the maximum security prison, and I, I was looking at what had happened, and it was almost like I had come out of a trance or a dream, and I was looking back, and I'm thinking... Have I actually done this? 
Whereas at the time when it occurred, that's not how I was thinking at all. Uh, and so the, the the wake up call took a long time for me, but it eventually came in October of 1982. That's that's quite a journey, Graham, from criminal lawyer to criminal. Um, and obviously that was the, the life-changing event that, that put you on a different trajectory for the future. So it must have been quite a shock for you. Um, what did life look like for you when you came out? I, uh, <clears throat> I did four and a half years. Uh, I got out in June of 1986. And uh, this time I had a very different mindset. When I... Uh, for the trial in 1983, I had a psychological report done on me uh, by psychologist Ian Joblin. And uh, the report read something like this. Alford appears as a tragic figure, chronically addicted to alcohol. He's destroyed his family, his life cycle, his friends, his career. In the areas of memory and concentration, he's lost over 40 points from his IQ, dropping from the top 2% to the bottom 5% of the population. But it was the bottom line that got me. He said he verges on being institutionalised. And I remember reading that report and thinking to myself, that, that's, that can't be true. But the more I looked at it, the more I knew it was true. And for the first time in a long time, I had a mirror that worked. And I didn't like what I saw. Because what I saw was this useless piece of human flesh that had just destroyed everything in its path over the previous 10 years. And I made a commitment back then, that's it, no more. I'm going to do whatever I have to do to put my life back together again. And you did. You did start putting your life back together again. Great. But it sounds like you were at quite a low at this point. You know, you didn't have much left um, recently out of prison. But knowing you as the man that I know you today, um, you know, something must, must have started looking up. Uh, can you can you share with us a bit about you know what how did that look what what started to improve for you how did how did your life take off again and what what did that look like from the time I got the psychological report in prison I spent an inordinate amount of time uh, on uh, doing mental toughness exercises and brain training which I still do to this very day uh, physically I got really fit lost a lot of weight again. Um, so when I got out, I came out with a, uh, a real focus and determination to spend the first 12 months out of prison just getting resettled back in. Uh, so I worked as a labourer in a scrap metal yard for a year or 10 months. Then I uh, worked at Budget Rent-A-Car for three years and Marsha McLennan or Marsh, the big insurance brokers. And then I was fortunate enough uh, in 1987 one of Australia's most successful businessmen at the time, Bob Ansett, who owned Budget Rent-A-Car, gave me a job. He knew my background and he took the risk and put me on. So I stayed there for three years. And then uh, when that came to an end, I started putting on events and bringing out international speakers. And I've got one of those compulsive personalities. Everything's got to get bigger. Uh, <laughs> so I wrote a couple of books and I was on the speaking circuit and each of the events got bigger and bigger. I started off putting them in country towns all around Australia. And then towards the end of the 90s, I brought out Storm and Norman, General Schwarzkopf from America, Leo Iacocca, the former uh, head of Ford and Chrysler, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, the former president of Russia. And in the year 2000, I brought Nelson Mandela out to Australia and Ruben Hurricane Carter, 
and some others. Um, then I managed a rock and roll band in America for a year, four young Melbourne guys. We signed them up to Hollywood Records and spent a year in Hollywood. So I'm a failed rock and roll manager. Um, <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> I, I've done a lot of training programs over the years for companies. And uh, as I said, I was on the speaking circuit and flew all over the world doing motivational talks and uh, customer service talks. And uh, then I went back to school in um, seven or eight years ago and did a diploma in alcohol and other drugs. I wanted to know more about that. Uh, so it's been a been a fascinating journey, something I certainly didn't envisage way back in the 70s when I left university. You have definitely seen a lot there over the last 38 years, Graham. Um, and we glanced over it briefly, but from prison to meeting Nelson Mandela, what was that like? What an experience. <clears throat> Uh, it took me four years to get uh, Nelson Mandela, uh, 29 invitations to South Africa, and I know why now. Uh, when he came out, I was speaking to his uh, personal assistant, a lady called Zelda Lagrange, and she was telling me that uh, Nelson Mandela was getting 7,000 invitations a week to visit all over the world, and they had no way of responding to them, so they just tipped them all out. Anyway, I kept going and differently, and finally, I got uh, a contact uh, at the Nelson Mandela Children's Fund. Uh, the CEO at the time was a guy called Akmar Dangor, and via a contact, I had a phone call with him, and I remember saying to him, Akmar, uh, would you be prepared to give me 30 minutes of your time uh, if I came over to Johannesburg? He said, where are you, Graham? I said, I'm in Melbourne, Australia. He said, what, you're going to fly all the way to South Africa for a half an hour? I said, absolutely. Uh, anyway, he agreed, so I jumped on a plane and went over there. I sat in his office for two hours, and at the end of the two hours, he said, the Children's Fund has two events a year that they can ask Mr. Mandela to do. I will nominate coming to Melbourne next year as one of those. So that's how we got him. Wow. So your determination, Graham, to get Nelson Mandela uh, makes me think that you never give up, which is interesting because that is the title of one of your books, isn't it? I have had the pleasure of reading. Um, tell us a bit about Never Give Up. Yeah, way back in 1992 or three, I can't remember exactly now, um, everyone, well, not everyone, but a lot of people close to me wanted me to uh, write a book on my life. And I said, no, 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 I'm not putting my dirty washing on the line. Anyway, eventually I decided to do it on the basis that I would give the royalties from the book to Life Education, which is the caravans here in Victoria that go around the schools teaching kids about drug and alcohol and that sort of thing. Uh, so I, uh, uh, I wrote the book, uh, Never Give Up, and I'm really glad I did. It's, uh, it's probably sold over 40,000 copies now. Um, or distributed, I give quite a few away, but uh, it's been fascinating to get letters from people who've read the book and have got something out of it. And I look back now and I think uh, I'm glad I did it because I, I can I know from the letters I've received from people that it's helped them. And when you think about it, it it's so helpful when we talk to someone who understands how we feel or understands the situation we're in, or has been down the path that we're currently on, 
it's it's so helpful to hear what they did and how they went about it, and also to know you're not alone. That other one, other people have, have, have found themselves in similar situations. Totally, I think that identification is uh, so important for us. And Graham, you know, with 39 years of sobriety coming up to almost 39 years, uh, that's incredible, really. And I know that it's included in some of, in some of your book, but maybe share a bit about how you've managed to achieve that 39 years. I. <laughs> I made it. I was going to AA. Uh, I started going to AA way back in 1982, and as I said, that was because uh, I thought it might help me with the jail sins. Well, it didn't. <laughs> but um, I started to hear the similarities: the car accidents, the blackouts, and then. And I'd been going to AA for about 12 or 15 months in jail, and I sort of thought I was different, and uh, this is not for me, and I can't. I couldn't work out how it worked. And I got shifted to a medium security prison at Bendigo, which is a country town here in Victoria. And about the third meeting, this guy stood up at the meeting and he said, my name's Antique Harry and I'm an alcoholic. And he told the story and I sat glued to the seat, spellbound, listening to this man's story. And three or four weeks later, I asked him to be my sponsor and he did. And he died in 1991, Antique. But he was to be... Uh, one of the great uh, mentors that I had in my life. Uh, I loved his approach to life. He got sober. He got his family back. He got his business back. He was up and about. He loved sobriety. And that's why I I got sober to live again. I didn't get sober to go to church all six nights a week. And Mm -hmm. I I, I wanted to really live and, and, you know, explore and do all the things we can do. But I knew none of that would happen if I didn't work out and treat my, my illness, my sickness, uh, alcoholism. And so I just made a decision that I was going to use Alcoholics Anonymous AA as my uh, treatment. And I've been doing that ever since. Uh, I approach it uh, very pragmatically. I treat AA like a petrol station. I call in, fill up and go. But like any car, if I don't fill up, the car doesn't go. And I, I know that. Um, and... AA for a lot of people has been the most wonderful experience in their life. I understand AA is not for everyone and NA is not for everyone. I get that. And I understand there's also other alternatives. But for me, it was the fellowship and it was the tools I got. Um, And in particular, there there was a speaker, an AA member here, he died a few years ago, called Jellic Knight Jack. I love all the names they used to give the old timers. (laughs) And Jellic Knight got his name because he tried to blow up the Eltham Hotel. That's how they called him, Jellic Knight. <laughs> anyway, he said, you've got to do the drill. And I remember asking him one night, what's the drill? And he said, you've got to stay connected. You've got to get a home group. You don't pick up one drink one day at a time and you go to regular meetings. And that's what he said. And AA's... For a lot of people who really don't understand AA, they don't realise how powerful it is and what a variety of options it has. Uh, The people who don't like AA or who sort of opposed to it think it's some sort of religious cult. Nothing can be further from the truth. Uh, And I often say about AA, to me, it's like a sobriety supermarket. You, You come in, 
And there's all sorts of aisles. There's speaker meetings, there's uh, big book study meetings, there's steps meetings, there's beginners meetings. There's all sorts of different meetings, depending on your learning style and how you absorb information. If you experience enough of these meetings, you will find the type of meeting that works for you. And uh, if if you get yourself a home group and you do that, um, then there's no reason why you can't go on to live a really fantastic life. Well, it's obviously worked for you, Graham, and, and you said earlier on that you wanted to get sober and stay sober to live life, really live life, and I think we can agree that you have definitely been doing that. And I know that this is something that you kind of carry forward so when you're helping support other alcoholics and addicts get into recovery and begin their recovery journey. Um, and that leads me on to, talk, to asking you about Reset My Future. Why don't you tell us a bit about Reset My Future, why your key theme has, is really about how to live life um, and why it's different from other recovery programs. The, the reason I uh, started Reset My Future was having run a rehab in Bali, which you know well because you used to come in and talk there, um, and taking people up there and getting them cleaned up and going. And I've been, as I said, I've been coaching uh, people with substance issues for 20 years, 25 years. To me, there's, there's three stages. The, the first one is the detox or getting them off it. Um, and getting them physically well again. The second phase is the reset, and this is critical. When we physically get well, after two or three weeks, we're feeling really well, and it's the most dangerous part, I think, in early recovery, because what then happens is, because you're feeling well physically, you think you've got this covered, and relapse occurs. So the second part is the mental reset. And the mental reset is changing your thinking about alcohol and drugs, but also getting yourself aligned between the ears. We need to remove from between the ears uh, shame, remorse, guilt, all those sort of things. We need tools to deal with the past. If we allow our past to park in our head, then that's a recipe for disaster. Um, and then the third part of the program after the mental reset is getting people excited about going forward, understanding who they are, how they're going to roll going forward, and uh, where their talents are and how they're going to unwrap their skills and talents, whatever they may be. I've never met anyone who's a hopeless case. And I've, over the years, I've seen some people who've been in some really bad situations from alcohol and drug abuse and addiction. But if it's approached properly, and if we detox them, and if, if people need a medical detox, they need a medical detox. Um, but a lot of people don't need a medical detox. They're still functioning. They need to get off it, but they've got to have the tools to get off it. And at Reset My Future, we approach it very differently. In a, in a traditional rehab, when you go in, you're not allowed coffee, you're not allowed chocolates, you're not allowed sugar, you're not allowed soft drinks. That's insane. Our, our alcohol's got a lot of sugar in it. So when we're coming off alcohol and giving it away in the first couple of weeks, the last thing you want is your client having a sugar detox at the same time. So we encourage people to get plenty of soft drink and sugar into them early 
to avoid that sugar detox. It also acts as an urge buster when we get a craving or an urge. I was speaking to a client this morning who two days into coming off alcohol and he had four cans of soft drink yesterday, Coca-Cola, and he said it really took the urge away and just settled him down. So we do it very differently. And what I get excited about is we, the families get back together again. One of the things I love is you sit in the consultation room and you might have the client in there and then you'll have his wife or her husband in there and the mother and father. Like last night, I had a mother and father of a 26-year-old who's just started on the program and she was crying and she'd blamed herself and uh, the father, you know, it was the tough love part of the, the deal. And he said, oh, he's no good. He's a no-hoper. And I was explaining to them, look, your son's behaviour is as a result of his addiction and his issues with uh, drugs, alcohol and prescription drugs. That's not him. That's where abuse of those substances take you. So, you know, if we can get him cleaned up uh, and get him off those and put him back together and get him aligned between the ears and get him to learn to deal with the past then you're going to get back someone you're going to love. And the session went for an hour and a half. And, and after that, uh, the mother came up and gave me a great hug. And, and she said, look, I, I just hope this is going to work. And I said, well, there's no guarantees, but I'm pretty confident we'll get him there if he keeps going. And not all of our clients uh, go to an abstinence-based recovery. Uh, I've got several clients at the moment who have um, – followed a, a, a reduced and a modified drinking plan and uh, they're all going reasonably well. Um, it takes a bit of time and some people that works for and some it doesn't. Graham, absolute pleasure speaking to you today. That's all we've got time for on this podcast. Thank you for sharing more about your past and uh, the interesting journey that you've been on and we'll leave it there. Thank you. Absolute pleasure, Danny, and I look to look forward to more of these podcasts. Absolutely. Thank you, Graham. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please don't forget to hit the subscribe button. We have some great guest speakers in the addiction world lined up for you in the coming episodes, so make sure you don't miss out. If you would like to find out more about Reset My Future, visit our website at www.resetmyfuture.com where you'll find information on our 12-week non-residential program for people who want to address their substance abuse issues, reset their path going forward, and feel excited about their future, along with plenty of free resources. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram, where we regularly share recovery tips, success stories, and open up the discussion about what modern recovery looks like today. Thanks for listening.